This episode is brought to you by the Denver Public Library. This season is all about women writers who are working to create community impact. We think elevating the work of these writers is so important that we've partnered with one of our favorite community resources, our local library system, Denver Public Library to be exact. And whether you're in Denver or someplace else, the library wants you to know that they're still here providing vital community resources. The Denver Public Library works to foster a culture of exploration, innovation, and forward thinking, and is focused on creating a strong community where everyone thrives. Head over to denverlibrary.org to access the latest virtual events and resources and find some of the great books by many of the talented authors we've had the pleasure of featuring this season. Hey, it's Tangie Renee. Before we get to the show, I'm popping in to quickly ask for a huge favor. If you're a fan of this show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of growing our listenership this season, and we could only do it with your help. Please take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Look at your phone right now and hit subscribe. Next, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave us a written review in addition to the five stars. That helps even more. This show has grown because of the incredible support of our listeners, and we have an ambitious goal of getting to our next 10,000 downloads this season. We can't reach our goal without your help, so please subscribe rate this podcast, and don't forget to keep sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Just hit share from wherever you're listening. That's it. Easy peasy. Thanks in advance for all your support. Smooches! It's here, the kickoff of season six. It is so crazy for me to think back that back in season one, I really thought that I was going to do one season and that would be the end of the show. And then I would think of a really good idea for a podcast at some point and then do that show. And really, I have our listeners to thank for the fact that we're still here six seasons later. It's because of your support, of your reaching out, telling me you wanted the seasons to come back, that you wanted to hear more and giving me ideas about what we could talk about, who we should have on the show. It's because of all of you that we're here. And it's definitely because of all of you that our show has grown so much. So thank you from the bottom of my heart forever and ever. I love you forever and ever for your support. I do want to kick off this season right now that she wrote that season. And that's what she did podcast with our first writer. I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Ivelisse Rodriguez. Her debut short story collection, Love War Stories, is a 2019 Penn Faulkner finalist and a 2018 Forward Reviews Indies finalist. I absolutely loved her collection of short stories for their cultural richness and elegant approach to discussing heartache, violence, and the hard choices Latinas are often faced when they find their place in society while also trying to hold true to cultural traditions or challenge those cultural traditions. Part cautionary tale, part of discussion on how Puerto Rican girls are raised to think about love, relationships, and their role in society. It was truly a pleasure to have Dr. Rodriguez and Love War Stories on the show. I don't want to hold this up any longer. Let's let this kickoff happen, baby. Let's get started. 
Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That's What She Did podcast. I am so excited today to introduce you to Dr. Ivelisse Rodriguez, incredible author of the book Love War Stories, who I learned about through a couple of our listeners. So at the end of last season, you all know that I always ask you, who should we be talking to on this show? And so people wrote in, and Love War Stories was the book that people were saying, I want to hear from this author. I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. Let's see if I can get her on. And here we are today. So thank you, listeners, for the suggestion. And Ivelisse, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I love your listeners already. <laughs> I love them too. They're the best. They're Honestly, they're the best. <laughs> Thanks so much. And, you know, I, as I shared with you before, I wasn't aware of your work until listeners brought it to my attention. So I went and got the book and I read it very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is, I had a lot of feelings about mm-hmm. the book. <laughs> I didn't quite like, it was like a range of emotion as I was reading the stories. So Love War Stories is a series of short stories that I don't, I would call it a cautionary tale for Latinas around love. <laughs> is that accurate? <laughs> um, I think it's a cautionary tale for any heterosexual woman in love. Um, I just happen to focus on Puerto Ricans, but yeah. But I would say that's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and it made me feel all of the emotions. I mean, everything. I felt like it was really raw in parts. Like just, there's a sense of destruction and a couple of stories that, that stood out to me that I'll get into. But before we get specifically to the stories and love war stories, I'd love to back up and learn more about how you came to this place. How did you become an author? What was that process like for you? It starts off in a very sort of like cute anecdotal way. So I think I was in fifth grade and basically the whole school had to write a story, which was really like a paragraph. And my principal came to my class and she said, I had the best story. And she gave me a chocolate bar and I love candy. So, you know, I fell in love. So then I spent a lot of time saying that I was going to write and I didn't write. And then I did take a couple classes when I was an undergrad at Columbia. But then for some reason, I thought, oh, let me just apply an MFA program. This was in fall 96. I got into Emerson, and so I went right after I graduated from college, and I was at Emerson from 97 to 99. I realized I'm just learning how to write. Or the other grad students, they had a better foundation of what it takes to write a story, but I realized I was just really at the beginning. And I think that one of the things that probably stood out at that moment for the admissions committee, which is what I assume, is that I had a distinct voice. I think that voice was coming out. So... Graduated from Emerson, got a job and stuff, and then I found that I really wasn't writing a lot. And so then I went to a PhD program in English and creative writing, and there I saw a shift in terms of I was a stronger writer than I was when I started my MFA program. And so I spent a lot of time actually learning how to write, and then um, I spent a lot of time sort of being scared to write. And so what would happen, I would sit down to write, and then I was, like, too terrified of it, just the enormity of the task, that, that I would sort of, like, get up and run away, and I couldn't do it. And so I had to, like, sort of learn these tricks over the years of how to be able to do it. And so, you know, people ask me how long it took me to write the book, and I'll say I started it, like, in 96, and they are like, totally frightened as they should be but I think the thing is that I was learning how to write 
then I had to get it over fear of like sitting down. Some of the things that I learned myself was to write for half an hour. And that's, I think when you're trying to write, you have these Greg those plans and you're like, I'm going to write for four or five hours. And that just sounds horrible. Nobody wants to do that. So I would tell myself, you're just going to write for half an hour. And so in half an hour, you're like, I can do anything in half an hour, even something that I find totally unpleasant. And so that would help me get going. And, um, and then sometimes I find myself writing a lot more. Um, so then I, my first story was published in 2005 and it was published in the Boston Review. And it's because I took a creative writing workshop with Juno Diaz at Vona. So it's a writer's workshop for writers of color. Mm -hmm. And the story I submitted to him was Summer of Nene. And he loved it. And I mean, I know people draw parallels between that story and Drown, which is accurate. And so then he published that story. And then he was trying to help me to get my short story collection published. But, you know, it wasn't ready. And so then he published my second story, which is Holyoke Mass and Ethnography. But um, they published a shorter version of what's in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, then I spent all, all this other time, like, sending out the book when it wasn't ready. So I sort of accrued all this rejection, which sort of lowered my self-esteem when I was thinking, oh, my God, this is never going to happen. I'm never going to get my book published. And so then what happened was I decided to let it go. I said, okay, this book's never going to get published. i going to sort of, like, put it to the side, and I'm going to start working on a novel. And so I was a tenure-track assistant professor from Manhattan Community College, and I just found that all I did was work. I worked like six days a week. And then I decided to quit my job in 2015 because my mom and her husband were moving to North Carolina. So I came down with them. And so then I was actually started working on my novel. And then I saw that the Feminist Press had a contest for women or non-binary writers of color for their first book. And I said, well, this short story collection is just sitting there. So I'm like, I'll just send it. So I sent it out and then it became a finalist. And then, um, and so that was like in like September 2016, maybe, or I think. And then in December, they let me know that I didn't win the contest, but they wanted to publish it anyway. And so then that was like a miracle. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then I got the book published. And because I was like so old at this point, and because I had spent so much time you know, trying to get the book published and, you know, just getting a lot of a rejection. I was just very sort of like, you know, I'll just be happy with whatever happens with the book. I'm just glad it's getting published. And so I didn't have any sort of big lofty goals. And then, then the book started to get some attention and it started to make these lists of like books to read in 2018. And then I turned into a greedy monster and I was like, I want it all. <laughs> <laughs> The fall, like, um, award season came, and my book wasn't nominated for anything, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> so I'm sad again. Then one day I get this very mysterious email from my um, publicist, and she's like, oh, somebody wants to talk to you from the Penn Faulkner Foundation, and basically the email said, you know, we need to talk to Ivelisse, it's, it's timely, and it's confidential, and I was like, I had no idea why they wanted to talk to me, I was like, well, maybe they just want me to fill in for somebody on a panel or something. And 
No, that's not what happened. I called the next day and then uh, the awards coordinator said, you're a finalist for the Penn Faulkner. And I was just sort of blown away. I was driving to work and I just thought I was going to cry. And I was just another miracle. And it was the most amazing thing ever. And so it's been a long and bumpy and up and down sort of journey. And I don't believe in platitudes. I don't believe that everything is always going to work out. But I will say this, that if you're trying to write, anything could happen at all. Anything. Mm -hmm. Negative things, but also really positive things that you just had no conception of even thinking about. Because I had sent my um, the awards coordinator at the Feminist Press a list of contests to send the book to, but... I wasn't even thinking about the Penn Faulkner because it just seemed so out there, mm-hmm. just at another level. And so I was really like focused on other awards. And so when they called, I was like, what's the Penn Faulkner? And then I was like, is it even on my Excel spreadsheet? And it was, and I was like, oh my God. So anyways, that's my sort of like happiest story. <laughs> You mentioned that you you did the program with Kuno Diaz, <laughs> and I love his work, Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, for some of our listeners that might not recognize the name, was excellent. I haven't read Drown, but it's on my list of things to read. <laughs> I heard that. So it's on my list. I have an incredibly long list of books to read all the time, but it's definitely on there. And, you know, I wonder what, so you have this opportunity to learn from a very seasoned well-known, incredible writer. And that program was specifically for writers of color, correct? Yes. So having that background, having that education, and then going through the publishing process, what did you learn about the publishing process as a woman of color? I mean, I think that's interesting. (laughs) I'm going to bring that back to this summer. Okay. (laughs) For all the writers out there, or for those who don't know, so there was this terrible hashtag this summer on Twitter called Publishing Paid Me, Mm -hmm. and it was the most demoralizing thing I've ever seen. Well, no, obviously there were demoralizing things in this world, but basically the hashtag was put up so that people could talk about their advances and show the disparity between white authors and black authors. So I think specifically they meant African-American writers. And some of the disparities were just so extreme. I remember this one guy, he got like $800,000 for his debut. Other A couple of other white female writers got like a million dollars or seven figures for their debuts. But I think what was most demoralizing was Jasmine Ward posted. And so she was saying that after she won the National Book Award the first time, she basically had to fight to get, I think, like $100,000 for her next book, which Mm -hmm. I just thought was the most ridiculous thing. And it just sort of like unveiled this sort of like new level of racism that I wasn't even sort of thinking about. I mean, when I was writing the book, some of the things that sort of stopped me at some points was I kept thinking, you know, who's going to care about my Puerto Rican girls? Like, who's going to read this book? And then I said, well, I'll read this book. Other Latinas will read this book. Other women of color will read this book. Other women will read this book. You know, I think it's an interest to all these various groups. And I think one of the things that sort of really bothered me, just besides the large disparity 
and advances was also, I just thought about my sort of own road in terms of all that rejection. And then also that I didn't get an agent until after I was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. So the Penn Faulkner Award's like the most, uh, one of the, probably like the third most prestigious writing award in the nation. And so I had to achieve all that before I got an agent. And so, you know, there are other people who are getting agents based, you know, on their debut book, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it just sort of like showed me just sort of the extreme difference in what I had to accomplish in order to get an agent. Because without an agent, you can't get into sort of like a big five publisher. And so I'm on a small press. I'm on the feminist press. And the benefit, though, was one, I thought they were like absolutely amazing. You know, my publicist would return my emails. I love their mission. And I just thought they were amazing. I think that obviously all these things would not have happened to my book without them because the benefit of the small press is that they're only working on a select few books. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they're going to make an effort to try to push those books. So, you know, on one end, I didn't get a lot of money for my book, but on the other end, they like, they did all this stuff. Like at a big five publisher, it might've been ignored, you know, that the feminist press, they really, I think they did an excellent job. And I mean, at the same time, it's sort of never, with publishing, it's sort of like you can put all these efforts into something, but it doesn't mean you're going to sort of get the exact thing that you want. So they could have like done all this sort of um, publicity and nothing could have happened. But nonetheless, they did the publicity and then a bunch of things happen. So on the other end, you know, it's not like it was like terrible. It's just a money aspect, I mm-hmm. guess, because it sort of then perpetuates this thing, right? So somebody that gets seven figures on their first book or on a book, they can like continue working on their second book or their third book. Meanwhile, I have like 30 jobs, you know? Right. It's hard for me to write and it's hard for me to sort of get going on that second book. So I don't know, it creates a lot of issues. Hey there, my fellow inspiration junkies. Do you miss browsing shelves for books, movies, and music? Denver Public Library is still here for you, offering these great resources both online and curbside. Tell Denver Public Library what you like to read or what you're craving, and they'll send you a whole entire personalized reading list with five to eight customized recommendations just for you. You can even place holds of up to 10 items that you can pick up curbside at most locations. How's that for convenience? Need a library card? No worries. Register for an e-card today and immediately access hundreds of e-media resources like e-books, audiobooks, music, movies, and so much more. And yes, it's all still free. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am totally a library junkie. You can call me a nerd if you want to, honey. I'll take it. Denver Public Library branches will be reopening soon. So make sure you check out denverlibrary.org for the latest info. And don't forget to follow Denver Public Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Smooches! Listener perks alert! I'm excited to tell you about Libro FM. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. 
choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same prices as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. For every purchase you make on Libro FM, a local bookstore of your choosing gets half the profits. It's a super simple way to shop local right from your own phone. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and you don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of That's What She Did podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Who doesn't love a BOGO? I know I do. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter code she did. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Now, how's that for a listener perk? You know, I didn't think really at all about the publishing world on any kind of rational level. I guess abstractly, I would wonder to myself why I couldn't find more of certain kind of authors, right? Or like more of certain kind of characters that I was interested in. But it was a very sort of passing thought that I would have. I don't know anything about the publishing industry. And then 2020 happened. And then American Dirt was the first thing that I was like, what the hell is going on over there? <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> messy world. Messy. And so I kind of started paying attention. And then the hashtag on Twitter thing started. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I was aware of it was because I follow Roxanne Gay and Jessamyn mm-hmm. Ward, the two main authors that I follow on Twitter. And they're, you know, they're fairly active on there, especially Roxanne Gay. And Roxanne Gay was talking about how she got like 25,000 for one book and like 75 for another. And I was like, this is Roxanne Gay. Like, I know. I like, know. Like, who the hell ever heard of this lady that wrote American Dirt? And she got what she got. She got like a million dollars or something. And Roxanne yeah. Gay. I think she got seven million. Seven million? Oh my God. No, that makes I saw it worse. That somewhere. Yeah, it does make it worse. I think seven figures, you think a million. And then somewhere I read it was seven. So I was like, it just gets worse and worse. Yeah, it does. It is. It's messy and it's ugly. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. And so, I don't know, heartbreaking when I think about how many incredible authors are out there that don't get what they deserve. Someone yeah. like Roxanne Gay. Like, I mean, <laughs> she's like a prominent cultural figure. <laughs> Right, right, exactly, exactly. Mind-moggling to me. <laughs> it is. It would, um, you know, so I had my writer friends texting me and calling me, and, like, there was a lot of spontaneous weeping on my part. Like, I would just be sitting here, I would just start crying, because it was just the enormity of, like, how horrible it was, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so my other writer friends were extremely upset also, so I think it just got to a lot of people. Yeah, 
It was, it's amazing. Amazing. So thanks for sharing about your experience there. I do want to bring us back to the book, Love War Stories, because I know our listeners are very interested in hearing more about this book. I think, like I said, I would describe it as a cautionary tale about love. Really? Mm -hmm. What stood out to me, so there was a couple of stories that I just like couldn't get out of my head. Mm -hmm. The first one, I don't remember what the story was called, but it was the one about Tia Lola and like uh -huh. the, the constant crying. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes, that one. That story made me uncomfortable. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I'm like, I had to like, I read it and then I like put it down and I didn't pick the book up again for like a week because I like really needed to think about why is the story bothering me so much? <laughs> like, I don't like this woman. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was mad at her. That's what made me uncomfortable when I thought about it is I was mad at this character because I viewed her as weak. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to like unpack that in my own mind a little bit, right? Uh, and then I think it came back to this dichotomy that is present throughout all of the stories is that women are told not to trust men. Mm -hmm. For multiple reasons, right? Some of them are very valid. <laughs> And, but at this, in the same breath, you're told not to trust men, but also you better get married. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And so it doesn't make sense. And mm -hmm. I definitely have experienced that. And my way of dealing with it was to just be like, I don't care about these dudes. <laughs> you have another character in another story who has the same attitude as me. And I like really <laughs> resonated with that. <laughs> right? And so... I think I saw her as being weak for getting mm -hmm. her heart broken, which happens, but mm -hmm. being in the heartbreak for so long. Right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. I was so mad, and I kept thinking, here's her niece that sees her behaving this way, and it's not acceptable. This is a bad example. This is not how we raise queens. Like, I was just, <laughs> like, so mad at her. <laughs> That's so fascinating. <laughs> Um, I mean, I see exactly what you're saying. You know, I just never thought of her in that way, even though you're right, though. I guess I always just focused on her obsession. And also, with that story, I sort of focused on, there was a moment, and my mom doesn't remember this, but I'm like, I know it happened. And so I remember my uncle laughing at my great aunt, and he said, she's still waiting. And so then the story was, I guess it's my great aunt. It's my grandmother's sister, whatever that is. I and think I think you're right. I think it's great aunt. Okay, okay. Basically, her one, her husband would come home and he would eat. And this is in Puerto Rico, and she would, you know, make some probably great meal. He would come home from work, he would eat, he would shower, and then he would go see his mistress. And then uncle was laughing about was that my great aunt was still waiting for him because evidently he had gone to the U.S. But it wasn't to work. He just left my great aunt and he like went there with his mistress, I guess, to live out his life. And yeah, it was just so disturbing to me, that story. And then the fact that my uncle was laughing about it. And 
So I sort of, you know, thought about the community and how the community reacts, I guess, you know, to this woman's heartbreak where it's, it's a source of laughter. It's a source of disdain, right? And yeah, and that she's just in that pain. And then it's also that I'm sure she was told this is what she's supposed to do, right? Because mm-hmm. imagine if Dia Lola had been like, and this is in the 50s, like, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm going to go find a new man. And imagine what would have happened then, right? Then Dia Lola is sort of a bad woman, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like there was, I don't know, there were no options for her. And so for me, the story is about this betrayal of the community and then how she then perpetuates that on Noelia to an extent. She's trying to save Noelia from being a woman, as she says, being a woman is a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Noelia's at her quinceañera, in a sense, she's also betrayed by the community because they sort of like stand around. They don't do anything to like help her. And so I was thinking about, you know, this sort of cultural way of becoming a woman through a quinceañera and basically how that fails Noelia. And that's why she chooses sort of another way to become a woman at the end with Ricardo. And, you know, that's why she sees herself as, basically she doesn't know what sort of destruction she's bringing to the society Mm -hmm. by virtue of choosing sort of another way of um, being a woman. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that stood out to me as, I guess, a theme in the book was (laughs) the glaring limited options for women. You know, you present these different characters who are are largely young women experiencing love for the first time and how that's like, it's a formidable experience for any person, right? Man or woman, like your first experience with romantic love. But it feels so much like it doesn't matter if it happened in the 50s, if the story is set in the 50s, it doesn't feel that different from now. Like it feels so limiting. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and that's exactly it. Because, you know, I like to tell the story of like how when I was in grad school, I think I was getting my PhD, and I remember my friend's mother being like, Oh, how's your love life? Like that was the most important thing. And I'm like, getting a PhD. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. They're all the like cultural things. Like I remember I went home to um I think study for my prelim exams. So I was with my mother and then she was telling some other woman like that I don't cook or I don't clean, you know? And I'm like, look, I'm going to get a PhD. I'm like, I can't be good at everything. And I'm not good at everything. You know, there's sort of some like very basic things I'm just not good at. Like, I don't know how to cook, you know? And, but it's sort of like, but I feel like those comments, it's really about, you know, they're signaling what I should be good at. Right. And what would make them proud, you know? Meanwhile, I'm, you know, in a different arena, sort of doing things that should engender pride, but they're not necessarily sort of focused on or you know, asked about, like, nobody's really like, hey, how's your PhD going? Do you love your classes? You know, I guess that's just not sexy enough. And so nobody really asked that. And so, I mean, for me, and this will sound totally random, but it's not. Like, I, um, I like to watch a lot of killer shows. And then, so I remember watching, like, Women in Prison. So many of the stories were, like, these women ended up in prison because of their, like, male partner, 
and because they loved them and because the male partner manipulated them into doing something terrible that they would not have done otherwise. And I found that very disturbing. And so, you know, my thought process with this book and just sort of like thinking about, you know, the way women are treated in society is that, you know, we're told to believe in love above everything else. And so then this idea of love becomes much more important than anything else. You know, I think we're told from the outset that, you know, that's what heterosexual girls are supposed to sort of want and they're supposed to grow up and get married and stuff. And meanwhile, there's sort of no sort of other alternatives that are really being pushed. Like, why don't we have narratives like, oh, you have to grow up and, you know be happy or, you know, you have to grow up and be an engineer or something like that. Those sort of narratives aren't like necessarily commonplace, but this love narrative is, and, you know, we're so invested in um, what happens when a woman doesn't have love. What is she doing with her life? Is she an old maid? Is she a homona now, you know? And um, I think that concerns me because, what I saw happening was that people, especially women, this concept of love before anything else. So let's say you could be in an abusive relationship, but you would say something like, but I love him. And so the idea of love was much more important than the way you were being treated or the way you were being disrespected the fact that you weren't being treated with kindness. And I just thought that that was really problematic, what we're doing as a society to like heterosexual girls, that we teach them to care about a concept much more than we teach them to care about themselves. And so when they're looking for partners, they're focusing on this idea of love, but really, I think we should be teaching them is this person kind to you? Is this person mm-hmm. compassionate? Is this person your friend, you know? And I think that if we glorify those concepts, maybe we could see a sort of shift in heterosexual relationships. So yeah, so those were my concerns. Mm-hmm. And that's what I put in my book. No, I think these things very clearly came through. And I appreciated that the characters, at least to me, felt very real. I mean, the other story that really stood out to me was, I think it's called Light in the Sky, the mom who's like fascinated with UFOs conspiracy theories. (laughs) And the daughter who is angry that she is unintentionally pregnant, right? And there was felt, like, even though it was subtle, I felt like her anger was palatable. Like, I felt like I could feel it. And it could just be like I resonated with that character because her attitude was very much like, I'm not getting married. I'm not having kids. I'm not going to have these restrictions placed on my life. And I felt like for her, it was about having choices. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You, you see her and she's looking at the woman her age who has the child and the husband. And right. she is like, absolutely not. <laughs> Nope. Nope. I couldn't tell if she was mad at herself or just mad in general, (laughs) but I felt like the anger was raw. (laughs) That is so interesting. Again, I'm like, oh, I love seeing like what emotions you're picking up on because just because I'm the writer, it doesn't mean like I know all the emotions. Like I'm thinking of something else and 
like when you say it, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she was pissed. She was like, because there's this moment she says something that's like inappropriate. Like it's the kind of thought you know you can't say out loud. And she says it in her head to herself. And I laughed like out loud. And I stopped myself and I like looked around and I was like, did anybody hear me laugh at that? I'm like, they don't know what I'm laughing at. Like, because it was so inappropriate. But she has the thought like, she goes, I side with the women who drive their children into the lake. Yeah. And, and that's what, and like, it's at the, towards the beginning of the story and like the raw anger, like she's pissed off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, I, I'm not mad at those women. And of course, nobody thinks that in real life. It's just like this vulnerable moment that she's having where she's clearly angry with the situation, maybe mad at herself as well. But also I sense like, this anger towards her mother mm. who is like not paying attention to anything that's happening around her, but is right. also the source of when are you getting married? Right, 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 right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So her mother is sort of like looking for, I don't know, sort of like a meaningless magic in the world. Like, you know, the UFOs or what have you. But the daughter's looking for sort of like meaningful sort of magic, like let Yamaya come and, you know, take these children. You know, she needs a miracle in the same way that, you know, UFO would be some sort of, you know, extraordinary sort of miraculous thing. She's the one who needs a miracle, but she's not sort of seeing any possibilities for that. And then in that story, I also wanted to capture, and so this was based on a trip that I took to Puerto Rico with my mom. I wasn't pregnant, but I, we were on the boat and she did see the UFO. And I mean, it turned out not to be a UFO, but (laughs) a lot of that happened, including that couple that we saw, the woman and the guy and... You know, it's in La Palera. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been to La Palera. No, I have Okay. So, you know, they do take you out in boats at night. So it's a biophosphorant bay. So it's in the southern coast of Puerto Rico. And basically you can go out at night. So you go and take a boat trip and then basically somebody jumps in the water to sort of like stir up the sort of luminescent aspects of the bay. Um, and they have to like stir it up now because of all the sort of pollution. Like, I don't know how long ago you would have just taken your boat out there and you would have seen how sort of illuminated the water was. So anyway, somebody does go into the water and stir up the luminescence and it's beautiful and stuff. But yeah, so, so I remember that trip because of that. And also because at the same time, I don't know, I must have been 30 something and then when we would visit female relatives, they would ask, when are you getting married? When are you going to have kids? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And then it's like conspiratorially, they'd be like, good, don't do it. Which I just (laughs) found so fascinating. Like, it's almost like everybody sticks to the party line, you know, until like somebody says, no, it's not for me. And then they sort of agree with you. And so I just wonder... In terms of thinking about what you were saying about anger, you know, what's their anger? Like, mm-hmm. what were their possibilities? Like, I know my mom wanted to be a teacher, and she got pregnant with my sister and then me. And I think, you know, what would her life have been like, you know, if she had been able to, like, fulfill her dreams and uh, be somebody else and, you know, be a teacher? I'm sure she, you know, doesn't credit us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some moms do, because I just feel like, 
it's sort of like thrust upon women that this is what they're supposed to do, but not everybody has like a mothery nature. Nobody wants to sort of like give up their lives for somebody else. I mean, I know I certainly don't. And so I feel like if I were a mom, even though everybody says how nice I am, I'm like, I just feel like I would have a seething anger about it because I couldn't be self-actualized in the way that I wanted to be. And so for me, I think that's something that's always sort of been driving me is sort of this idea of self-actualization, which I think is, you know, at least for me, it's the most important thing. And, and I know it's not for other people and that's totally fine. It's just, you know, I don't think we should obviously have to have these lives like forced upon us when they're not the right lives for us. Mm-hmm. So you think, is that... I guess, concept, that feeling, the main inspiration for Love War Stories? Um, I think um, the main thing for me, at least when I was writing it, and again, people will get other things out of it, which I think are wonderful. For me, I think it was really that negative message of just how destructive love could actually be and how much women, heterosexual women, sacrifice for love and how much they sacrifice for themselves. And You know, I'm 44 now, and so I think back to when I was, like, young, like, in my 20s, or, you know, in college, too. I'm like, oh, my God, all that time I wasted whining about some guy who, like, clearly didn't like me, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, if I could have that time back, or if I could do it over again, you know, like, you'd be a lot smarter and stuff. And I don't know. I, I would just really love if we could learn to value other things that I think really sort of value ourselves more than being like in a couple. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's missing. And and again, I think the heterosexuality, the way it's constructed is problematic in terms of, you know, women are taught again that they should grow up and go get married and stuff. And then you have men, heterosexual men who are socialized to sort of like run away from that. And so it's just very odd. And I'm just like, how are you just supposed to get heterosexuality to work if you have one partner like running towards it and then the other one is running away? And yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that like I am married. And <laughs> one thing, we don't have kids, but one thing I always tell my younger family members, cousins, whatever, as they're graduating from high school and, you know, like on the cusp of figuring out what they're going to do next. And, and this is something I tell my female cousins. I don't right. really worry about the male cousins because <laughs> this is the world that we live in. Uh, <laughs> but I tell them, you know, you don't want to go to college, fine. Don't go to college, whatever. But whatever you do, don't move in with some dude. <laughs> whatever you do, don't do that. Instead, go travel. Like, like go see the world. Go, like experience things go be free and wild and meet as many people as you can and then later if you feel like maybe you want to be in a committed relationship with somebody then okay but don't marry them right away like just wait (laughs) yeah and they're always looking at me like what are you talking about and I'm like just trust me and it's not because I don't want to be married or I regret getting married. I don't. It's because I did that. I went, I traveled and I studied abroad. And then I can compare to some people in my own family that right out of high school are married and have kids and they're like, they're tired and they're young. And I'm like, I, you know, I can't say that they don't love their lives. I don't know that. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. 
it, they just seem so exhausted to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think for me, like some of the things I remember most, you know, are those moments where I was traveling. You know, for some reason, I was thinking about sort of accomplishments in life yesterday when I was driving home. And one of them was traveling because it's, you just get to see these wondrous things, you know, and these things that you will carry with you for like 40 years that nobody can ever take away from you. And you can also sort of see yourself at that moment when you're traveling. It's almost like everything's exciting. It's sort of like, ooh, I found the chocolate shop. You know, like I was able to follow these directions. And everything feels like a victory. And so you're somebody else when you're traveling. It's almost like you're sort of like a newborn, but you're ready to go out there and take on those challenges and everything. Every Mm -hmm. sort of minute moment becomes, again, like a miraculous thing just because you were able to accomplish it. And so you Mm -hmm. remember that you were once, you know, able to do like certain things and that you had some sort of gumption etc and you know it's nice time to spend with yourself to see like who you are like who's inside you and like you know the things that you can do which you know in everyday life you don't even notice anymore Mm -hmm. no I agree and I think that's why as I was reading the book I was like this is a cautionary tale (laughs) this is is warning the young ones (laughs) like to not rush in. I think really interrogate the idea that it's your role as a woman to marry a man. Like that's considered a major accomplishment. And I think it's telling women to interrogate that idea. Like really think about what that means and really think about like who are you and what do you want? Right. No, it's true because I've always thought about that too. It's sort of like, you know, you know, there was that episode from Sex and the City where, I don't know, Carrie had to buy somebody uh, like a baby shower present or something, or I think that's what it was. And the woman, somehow Carrie's silver shoes got destroyed or something. And so then Carrie, and I think the woman was like, they're just shoes, you know? And so then Carrie is like, I don't know, she throws herself like a single person's like party and she has a registry and all she has are those shoes. And I've thought about that a lot too, because yeah, like people treat getting married like an accomplishment. And I don't think that's necessarily an accomplishment. So... It's a milestone in your life if that's what you want, right? Right. Yeah, I don't see it as an accomplishment either. I think it's part of your evolution if marriage is something that feels important to you. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I mean, nonetheless, I think it should be, like, celebrated if that's the thing that you want. When it's set up as the only accomplishment that you're Mm -hmm. sort of being judged by, it becomes a problem. And so then I think about all these other things that aren't, like, celebrated. And so, like, when I was, like getting ready for my book launch. I had a little um, photo session. My mom was laughing at me, but I was like, I don't care. And so basically I put my book in my arms like it was a little baby. And then <laughs> I made this little postcard that I put on social media. And it was like, happy birthday. Like, welcome to the world. No, it was like, it's a book. Instead of like, it's a boy. <laughs> And there was like a little picture of like a womb and I put the book in the womb. <laughs> I was like born on July 10th, 2018 at Feminist Press Hospital. <laughs> 
And like, for me, you know, like, that's my greatest accomplishment, you know? And so, you know, I think now we see people, you know, have these book birthdays or whatever, or they'll talk mm-hmm. about their book birthday, but yeah, I'm like, where's my book baby shower? And uh, <laughs> maybe I should have had a book baby shower. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm totally like, well, if I die tomorrow, like, to me, that was the biggest thing I could have done, and um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I feel satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's so funny. Like, we don't celebrate these other kinds of accomplishments the way that we celebrate a woman getting married. And there's a meme, there's a couple of memes going around social media about it that made me think of when I started the podcast... <laughs> I like started the podcast and I was telling people like, oh, I started a podcast and USA Today wrote about it and they and people would just give me this blank stare. <laughs> like, why is that important? And I'm like, it's an accomplishment. Like I started a media channel. <laughs> I'm media now. Like, do you understand? <laughs> Like, people are writing about me in blank stares. Like, nothing. And I was like, okay, I guess we just won't talk about that anymore. But then the question would be like, so are you having kids? And like, shut shut up. (laughs) Well, the podcast, that's what the name is. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really enjoyed getting to know more about you and your process for writing Love War Stories. Oh, is our hour up already? It is. I told you I would pay attention. (laughs) You know what it is? I think I just talked too much. This was great. I just love that some of your, you know, listeners ask for you to talk to me. I don't know who you are. But besitos to all of you. <laughs> Definitely 100% my pleasure. Where should people go to get Love War Stories? I think I got it on Amazon. Yeah, um, you can get it at the Feminist Press website. You can get it at bookshop.org if you want to support independent presses. And you can also get it at Amazon. And I don't lie, I, I usually buy my books on Amazon, but that's because I have a visual impairment and it's just easy for me to read it on my Kindle. Sure. So. <laughs> We understand. We will be sure to link in the show notes for everybody so you have a quick one-click option to find the book. And it's a series of short stories, so it's not going to take you long to read. You'll probably have all of the emotions like I did. I was like super pissed off at a couple of these characters. (laughs) Like super mad. I was like, I can't even deal with her right now. Like, I just can't. Check it out. (laughs) It's definitely thought-provoking and, you know, touches some buttons. So (laughs) you don't want to miss this book. Love War Stories, available at Feminist Press or check out bookshop.org, of course, Amazon, because they're eating everything. So they have it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, you guys know what to do. Hit the subscribe button. If you haven't done so yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. And please continue to shout out and share this show. We have grown to a global audience because of your shares. That's how we did it because you're so awesome and we love you so much. And I can't thank you enough from the bottom, bottom of my heart. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spending this time with us. We understand that you can spend it with anyone and you choose to give it to us so thank you until next time we out